You're listening to Community Radio WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, October 31st, 2017. Happy Halloween. I'm Amy Brown. Today we are bringing you some of the poets and storytellers who performed at the recent Blue Hill Word Festival. So we are going to get started with Mr. Bob Quinn, who hails from Eagle Island. He has been living on this island, this is what he told me, so I know that it's true. He has been living on this island for 202 years, all right? So, it's going to take him a while to get up to the stage, (laughs) but he did make it off the island, and he is here, and I'm looking right at him, so Bob, come on up. Bifocals, you know. Well, thank all those people that uh, thought this up and invited me here, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, We haven't got a whole lot of time. I'm going to read a poem that my uncle wrote. Uh, he he wrote quite a few of them through his life it was things that he was doing and uh, they varied from time to time so this one is uh, oh probably in the 1920s and uh, my father's his brother older brother and he was uh, running a yacht for one of the neighboring islands summer families and get pretty repetitious. I'm a poor down easter from Eagle Island, Maine, and why I am a sailor I never could explain. I can't resist the ocean, I'll always hear its call, but I'm going to pack my suitcase when the yacht's laid up this fall. I have no cows or chickens, and I have no spuds to dig, and I'll sell the horse and wagon and give away my pig. I owe a lot of money, and I'm going to pay it all, but I expect that I'll be broke, boys, when the yacht's laid up this fall. That's not working. No more I'll polish, vanish. No more I'll wipe up grease, and I'll put down no more fenders. I'm going to live in peace. I'm through with scrubbing decks, boys. I'm fed up with it all, and I'll clean my final spark plug when the yacht's laid up this fall. I've changed oil in the engines till my fingers are begrimed, and I've been up to South Brooksville just 13,000 times. <laughs> I've lugged a ton of ice cream in 19 miles a meal, and when we lay up this fall, boys, I'm taking my last sail. I'll bury all my collars and burn up all my shirts. My neck has been constricted till my Adam's apple hurts. I'll put on boots and sweaters and my dirty overalls, I'm through with shirts and neckties when the yacht's laid up this fall. I'll get my little Chevy, and in it I will ride, and I'll never have to worry about the wind or the tide. 
I'll never have to tie her if I leave her for a week, and she'll never go adrift, boys. I know she'll never leak. I'll hunt me up a country where there ain't a lousy dog, and I'll lay abed till noontime and whistle at the fog. And when that southwest wind blows, let her rip and howl and squall, because I won't give a damn, boys, when the yacht's laid up this fall. <laughs> <coughs> And that was September the 9th, uh, what did he say then, 1933. <laughs> and he continued to, you know, to write as uh, just about most anything he was doing. I haven't got time to read a lot of them, but uh, I could just, I could recite a few verses he, he had a pretty good sense of humor, and uh, he says, uh, one of them says, uh, one time when we was fishing along the coast of Maine, we put in Castine Harbor, dodge the wind and rain. We couldn't find a hotel where we could spend the night until we come to the Pentagoet, and there we saw a light. Well, I wish that I could tell you all the sights that I have seen, but... I was awful bashful when I was 17. There was a dozen girls come running when I pounded on the door. I saw at least a hundred, I counted 14 more. <coughs> we, <laughs> we was in the dormitory of the Castine Normal Girls. <laughs> I backed into the corner and I hollered for the dean. Must have been a dumbbell when I was 17. <laughs> oh boy. I don't know if I'd had to read that one or not. But <clears throat> In some ways it seems appropriate and uh, I hope it'll be all right. Didn't the lady say that the later we went, the uh, audience changed or something. <laughs> oh, the world's had religion for 10,000 years, and I've been in it right up to my ears. I've studied the book, and I've pondered the text, and what denomination will I try next? You can't tell from a church as by it you ride just what you will hear when they get you inside. I joined up with one, I tried all the rest, and the old hard-shelled Baptist I think I like best. I once saw a church by the side of the road and says, I'll go in and unburden my load. All sinners are saved, said the sign over the door, then the whole congregation fell down on the floor. Now I knew kneeling and praying was good for the soul, but what earthly good did it do them to roll? With legs waving high, they rolled over and yelled, and they may have seen heaven, but it sounded like blazes. <laughs> <clears throat> I went to a church with the cross on the steeple. The cushions were lovely, and so were the people. And I says, now I guess I can do as I please. And the guy right behind knocked me down on my knees. Said, take that Bible and beat it. He hissed in my ear, we don't believe in that Bible in here. So I got over there, and I scurried right home, for a Yankee will not take his hat off to Rome. 
I was a Methodist once, but never again. All the congregation could say was amen. It was amen to this and amen to that. And the preacher, he didn't know where he was at. He said the devil invented the dance. Then a guy yelled amen before he got a chance. At the doorway, the parson said, please come again. So I looked at him and said, brother, amen. <laughs> and I attended the Episcopal church in our town. They asked me to wear a long flannel gown. They claimed they believe it all right to dance, but I thought I would feel a lot better in pants. <laughs> nice flannel nightshirt's all right, I suppose, but I don't let religion interfere with my clothes. With my collar on backwards, I'd look like a wreck, because I can't knot a tie at the back of my neck. <laughs> I don't know exactly what church I will choose. There's only one reason I don't like the Jews. They own half the earth, and their future is bright, but Sunday school shouldn't meet on a Saturday night. So I guess I'll stop hunting before I'm too old, and I'll haul down my jib and sail back to the fold. I'll drop down my anchor in the church by and by. An old hardshell Baptist I'll be till I die. <laughs> yeah, well, they go on and on. I guess I'd have to... Uh, I'd have to take a chance and say that uh, Sam's got down there in a bookstore uh, some of the CDs I recorded all these in, and, and I guess a few stories too. I I don't I haven't had time about the stories because they're not written down, and it's really just living, you know, and what goes on. Something comes up, well. You can make a story of almost anything, and uh, <laughs> they, uh, you meet some characters as you go along, and uh, next fellow coming up here has met some of those too. I know uh, that dear Al Sonnington, they've, they've cranked out some. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I went fishing with Steve Robbins for a long time, and uh, he, uh, he was a good one for it. He and his brother, uh, they had a little beach where they could put the boats on, ground them out, paint the bottom and stuff, and uh, spring cleaning up. So they had them in on the beach there one day, and there, another friend of theirs brought his boat in. That was Buster Aldrich, and uh, Steve uh, Somewhere along the line, gave him a name, called him Bigfoot, and as I know, he always <laughs> went by that. But anyway, um, Buster got his boat all done, cleaned up, and time he went home for lunch. And when he come back, while tide was coming, the boat started to float, so he he didn't have much time. He scurried around and got his lines untied and got in and. Uh, Boat floated, and he ran off, put her on the mooring, and had his rowboat with him, got in that, and pushed off to row ashore, and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> while he was gone to lunch, Steve painted one side black. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the boat was white, but <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> you couldn't trust them fellas, you couldn't let them get away, yeah, so...
It's quite a crew. It was a lot of fun. Can't think of another one, see. There, there was a lot. There was a lot of them there, though. There's always doing pranks and whatever. I got in a mess one time. Uh, back on Eagle Island, the family was still there. We had uh, cattle there, and it was in the summertime, Fourth of July, as a matter of fact. And I took a lady, uh, family friend, and whatever, go up there and pick strawberries on Fourth of July. And when I got there, why, my great uncle was doing the farming there, and he said he had a cow that uh, she'd got down in the, on a side hill in the woods and calved, and what they call she cast her weathers, he said. So I was only a teenager, and <laughs> uh, yeah. well, they said we got to, you know, we got to save the meat, they said. You got to save, that cow's a goner, you got to save the meat. Well, I had to shoot the cow, we saved the calf, and then, I mean, I had been deer hunting, I knew about dressing out the deer, but uh, I had to undertake to, to dress that cow out and skin her. And that was the key that saved me, because it was a fellow in Stonington that uh, did a lot of things, Skinner Williams. And that's what they called him anyway, French, named Francis, but, well, somehow we got word to Skinner, and he come out and uh, got in time to save me. We did finish that and uh, got a quartered up and hung the cellar, because it was a weekend, nothing else we could do, but uh, made it anyway. Got through the weekend and got it to the freezer, but that's, uh, we didn't get any strawberries picked. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of that one. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat>You're listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM, and today we're featuring some of the storytellers and poets who performed at the recent Blue Hill Word Festival. This was recorded by WERU's Matt Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome someone who's done so much for the arts in our area and around the states. Someone for whom craft making and creativity are at his core. I first met Stu at Haystack when I was a high school teacher and he was the director. And we had a writing symposium for high school students around the state for a period of 12 years. So it was fortuitous uh, that I would meet him at that time. And just imagine, he's been at Haystack for 27 years. Can you imagine how much influence he's had on how many people in 25 years. It's incredible. Uh, he's a promoter of the arts and of innovation in the arts. And uh, since then, he's had untold contributions uh, to the literary world. Four books, uh, many publications and appearances. He's been on Garrison Keillor's Writer's Almanac. He's the, he's the creator of NPR's Poems From Here on the Classical Channel. 
and he's done some collaborative writing with his wife, Susan Webster. At my bedside right now is his book, Only Now. I, I always keep one of his books on my book table. Uh, when he first came out with Pilgrimage, I'd walk from room to room uh, with, with that book and f- absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, Stu, uh, I describe uh, his influence on me as a grounding a grounding one. Uh, he grounds me on the continuum between the particulars of writing poetry and the cosmic energy in the world. So, recipient of the Distinguished Educators Award, Honorary Fellow of American Craft Council, and Maine's much beloved poet, please welcome Stu Kestenbaum. can perform weddings and we're in a church so if anybody gets urged to get married if you have the license I can do the job you really get worried when you're a notary that somehow you're going to make a mistake all you have to do is sign the license but such an awesome responsibility just to you have to mail it in that's another big thing to remember (laughs) to do harder to do in Brooksville now that they don't have our Penobscot now that there's not a full-time postmistress as we found out earlier so um, I'm going to read you uh, some uh, new work and some old work, I guess, and in the middle work. Uh, so a few years ago, I began to work on a series of poems which I envisioned as, as prayers in a way that they were kind of devotional. Um, and in fact, uh, when I was appointed Poet Laureate, I got to say a benediction for the state legislature, Walter Kamega, uh Invite made it our representative uh, got me invited to give the benediction and I got a placard that said clergy of the day <laughs> and I could park anywhere at the state house and every every legislative session um, there's a benediction by a member of the clergy so I got to be that clergy member even though I was a comparative religion major in college so I thought that yeah. and uh, and the message I got from the clerk's office was that there were only three things they wanted in the benediction. It had to be upbeat, ecumenical, and brief. <laughs> so. But I, I, when, I get, when I got there, all the legislators stood up, which they do before each benediction. It was kind of an awesome feeling. And I just said uh, that I actually wasn't going to say a prayer, but I thought a poem was like a prayer because it slowed you down and made you pay attention. Uh, so this is called Prayer in the Strip Mall, Bangor, Maine. The week after Thanksgiving and the stores are decked out for holiday shopping, including a TJ Maxx, where what was once too expensive loses its value and attracts us, there's a store with a big yellow banner proclaiming giant book sale, a seasonal operation of remaindered books, which doesn't mean that the books aren't good, only that the great machinery of merchandising didn't engage its gears in quite the right way. And I buy two books of poetry, and I'm leaving the store, the first snowstorm of the winter on the way. And as I get to the glass double doors, a bearded man with a cane is entering. He has been walking with a woman who is continuing on to another store, and he has the look that could make him either eccentrically brilliant or just plain simple. And as I open the door, and he opens the other side, he turns and says, I love you. 
not to me, but calling back to his friend who is departing. Only he said it looking at me, closest to me, which is unintended love, random love, love that should be spread throughout the world, shouted in our ears for free. Um, so I've lived in, in Deer Isle for almost uh, like 30 years, 29 years. Um, and, but I first came to this part of the state. I was a college student, then I came to visit my friend, Alice Hildebrand, who was living on Fly Point. And uh, in the, the wisdom of youth, I got a, I hitchhiked from Boston to get here. And, uh, and my last good ride, I was at the, what's now the Big Apple Store, and uh, I got dropped off, and it was like dusk, and the mosquitoes were just about to do a blood drive on me, and I had my guitar in my backpack, and I got picked up and got a ride. And the guys who picked me up thought my guitar was a cello. They thought I was a musical student at Knizel Hall. <laughs> so that's how why they picked me up. Otherwise, I would still be out there. <clears throat> to Alice, who taught me about poems. I remember when we would stay up all night heading down to the village to watch the baker make the donuts, the greasy O's rising miraculously in the oil. I'm sure he was wondering why jerked-up college kids would come down the hill to visit him. He was at work while we were at Discovery. Some jobs can be discoveries, not like the ones famous scientists make, but like those I made before I visited you that summer. I was working in the gas station, learning to stop the pump just right on the dollar, not going over by a penny, or cleaning the windshields perfectly with the squeegee, the water running down like a light show on the shadow of the dashboard. I hitchhiked from Boston to Maine to visit you at your cottage, getting a long ride in a hippie's recycled delivery van, past the hulks of the schooners rotting in the harbor in Wiscasset, past the souvenirs in Perry's Nuthouse in Belfast, until I was dropped off on Route 15, still 40 miles away, in the mosquito-filled dusk near the humming and flickering lights of the gas station, like an Edward Hopper painting come to life. How is it when night comes on we can feel so alive? The darkness is surrounding us, and we're standing with our hopeful thumbs out, waiting for a ride. You know, you clap for the first poem. Now, and now, no, 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 don't, don't, don't clap for the other one. You just realize it's a kind of, you know, it's a poetic etiquette, and then like the other poems think, well, what's wrong with me? They clap for the first one. Or you clap for one in the middle, the other ones are going, well, what's going to happen to me next? And the other first ones are saying, why didn't I get clapped for? So um, that's, why the, that's why people develop this technique with poetry, because it, it's less embarrassing to the poet and the audience. Uh, so after I left uh, Haystack, I was invited to go to a school called uh, Penland, which is very similar to Haystack. And it was great uh, as a visiting writer that I, uh, so I didn't have kind of a letdown. I could just go and be in another similar community, but with no responsibility. So if a toilet backed up, I was, I was worried about it, but I didn't anguish over it, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and while I was there, I began this uh, ritual where people would give me words and I would use those and make poems. So I've begun a series that I've been working on uh, uh, since that time. So I'm going to read you some of those. I don't think you need to know the words for it, but, uh, you know, why not? So the words I was given were sliver, dog, evoke, marriage equality, pizza, emulate, Newtonian, swim, cupcake, delirium, and loose leaf. Decree. 
Let there be equality in every marriage, and let love emulate Newtonian physics falling down to earth from the heavens so that we will understand that a pound of love drops at the same rate as a pound of iron or a pound of feathers. Only when love lands, it breaks into slivers of hope. Let the dogs roll in the shards and begin to trot deliriously in search of crusts of pizza and cupcake wrappers and swim to the land of dead things to roll in, for hope is eternal in all our hearts, animals and humans alike. And while we're at it, let's gather up the love and put it in loose-leaf binders and page through what was. Let was become is. Let our hearts learn to be. Well, while we're in Hancock County, um, you know there's a Dunkin' Donuts in Bucksport, right? You know there's a Dunkin' Donuts, there are two in Augusta, there are a thousand in Boston. Uh, Where did I see one where I was really surprised? Minneapolis in the airport. It's like being home. Hey, it's just like Bucksport. Um, So this is a poem that's kind of about uh, Dunkin' Donuts. Rocky Coast. First, there was the pink granite, molten and buried for 350 million years. Then there was the ice encountering the ledge, dragging rocks and trees over the land. And then the lichen working in the cold, ceaseless wind, cleaving to the stone, resurrecting the soil by eating away at the mica and quartz to make a thin layer of earth that the coast rests on. And then there was the Dunkin' Donuts, built on the ledge in 1989 in Bucksport, Maine, the town where the paper mill makes clouds and sends them billowing out into the landscape. The Dunkin' Donuts, where the coffee is always fresh, and when you inhale its aroma, it's as if you are starting the day again or starting your life over. One more chance. This is where I buy my chocolate sugar donut and drive down Route 15 in the dark when I bite down on an earring back baked into it. I dream of the million-dollar liability settlement, enough to do whatever I would want to, and return to show with horror the small steel post to the young woman in bright polyester at the counter who offers me a dozen free donuts, not enough to change my life, but enough to feed me for a while. And what else could you need? Sugar, fat, and the first bite like Eve's just before she walked out into the fallen world. You know, I went, I realized there's another Dunkin' Donuts. It's right up here. You could just follow the styrofoam cups along the shoulder of the road to get to the next one. It's like a, like a game. The reason I stop there from time to time is just uh, a ritual to stay awake. It's not the coffee. It's actually just trying to find the cup holder in the dark that does it. Um, but I brought those donuts. I brought the donut. When I brought the donut back, you know, I thought, I'm really going to get something. And she just gave me a dozen free donuts. And, and she said, you know, they, they bake those in Bangor. Like... <laughs> So much for corporate responsibility in the world, huh? This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. These are some of the storytellers and poets performing at the Blue Hill Word Festival that took place earlier this month. Before I bring up the cop, I do want to thank uh, the the festival's media sponsor, WERU, who... uh, Our man Matt over there got in good hands uh, with this, the sound here. And in a second, we're going to bring up 
the cop. Steve Pickering lives here in Blue Hill, and you can get his latest book, um, Bad Moon Rising. Awesome title. So welcome to the stage, Steve Pickering. Good evening, everyone. Yeah. Bob kind of gave away some of the stuff, in, and I thought my story was going to be an old story, but not as old as his. Um, mine's going to date me a little bit. It goes back to 1987, back when a certain recreational medicine was illegal. And 1987, it was about five years after Nancy Reagan told us all to just say no to drugs. Most of us were still saying, hell yeah. But the problem was you had to deal with criminals because it was illegal. I know what you're saying. Most marijuana growers and sellers were just nice people trying to help out other nice people get their herb of choice. And for the most part, in some places that was true, but more often than not, you were confronted with a criminal. And these criminals, if you get between them and their money, they could get quite violent. And you're probably wondering what my part with this is, but maybe not because she told you I was a cop. I'm retired now. But I had been newly promoted to detective and assigned to a, it's got a really long name, Maine State Police Drug Enforcement Administration Anti-Smuggling Task Force. <laughs> Their job wasn't chasing teenagers around Old Orchard Beach buying joints. Uh, they took down the multi-ton loads of marijuana that came in on the coast, primarily Stonington, in the dead of night. <laughs> so, and, and these guys... This particular unit that I got into had a really good reputation for doing just that. So good, in fact, that a couple of Colombians were intercepted to Logan Airport in Boston, sent to Portland to, that's where the office was, to disrupt their good work, if you know what I mean. They neglected to tell me this when they recruited me for this unit. So the particular case I want to talk to you about starts out the same as most, most cases do in rural Maine. Somebody ratted somebody out. I mean, somebody gave a tip on something they thought was suspicious. <laughs> And this particular tip came from a woman who lived in St. George, down around Thomaston. And uh, she, you would call her a local, because she lived local then, that's what she liked to be called. And she had a neighbor living at a rental property, had a rental property, and the guy there, who had been there for about a week, he was driving a red 82 Buick, which had Massachusetts plates on it, which made him from away, and suspicious on top of that. <laughs> but what made it worse, he had this little rubber raft a Zodiac-type inflatable boat with a 100-horsepower motor on it. <laughs> so she'd watched the news and read the papers and knew what was going on, and she called the Knox County Sheriff's Department. And I believe her quote was, You know damn well they're up to no good. They're probably pot smugglers. <laughs> That's all it took to get six troopers and four DEA agents and an untold number of Knox County deputies to follow this poor guy around 24 hours a day. So we did that for about two weeks. We identified three other co-conspirators, and we ended up on the Calderwood next, sec uh, next section of Vinyl Haven Island. He was staying at a cottage there. Well, they called it a cottage. To me, it was a 6,000-square-foot mansion, but they like to call it a cottage. So once we established that this was probably a smuggler, oh, I didn't mention, he drank Heineken, too. That's, that's probable cause to dissect that they're a <laughs> smuggler. So they had a meeting in Portland, the DA office, and the six troopers and the four DEA agents were there and the senior agent in charge, called a SAC, I wouldn't like that name, but that's what they were called, and uh, decided that we had to 
formulate a plan. And what they had learned in their background investigation was the caretaker, the cottage had recently lost their caretaker. He just stopped showing up about three weeks ago. Matter of fact, he's never been back. I don't know what happened to him. So the agent in charge there said, well, we need to put somebody in undercover. And there was no discussion, no talk about who's had experience doing anything like this. Everybody in the room just looked at me. So I figured the reason was I was the most junior guy there and I was the youngest guy there. These guys were all old. They were like 39, 40 years old. Well, when I was 30, they were old, you know. Um, so I looked at my supervisor, Terry Parsons. I said, Terry, you're just picking me because I'm the junior guy. He says, oh, no, Steve. He says, you have a, a special set of uh, life experience and a unique heritage. You're perfect for this job. And I knew right then and there, as soon as he said heritage, what was up? Because from Calderwood Neck, if you get in a little boat and go out Fox Island thoroughfare between there and North Haven and you look to the east, you will see the home of my birth and nine generations before me, Deer Isle. <laughs> well, actually, I lived in both towns, Stonington and Deer Isle, and very diverse cultures. You might think it must have been difficult for me to acclimate myself and be able to cross back and forth those boundaries <laughs> and do it well. Well, I had another advantage, or disadvantage, if you want to call it. I, I'm a product of mixed marriage. Uh, my mother was from Stonington, my dad was from Deer Isle. <laughs> so, I know you can't tell right now, but the, the glasses tend to hide the lazy eye, and my wife Betty makes sure my one eyebrow looks like two. But, but, ba but back in the day, from 20 feet away, you could see there was something wrong with me. <laughs> so, I figured I was profiled, I was typecast, and they were going to take me and put me behind enemy lines as a spy on the war on drugs. So, I had no choice in the matter, so I had to embrace the position. So in order to do this, you know, these are criminals, and they can smell a police officer from a mile away, so I had to develop a, a persona, an undercover image, and a disguise. So the first thing I had to come up with was a name. I couldn't use Steve Pickering because Vinyl Haven and Stonington are pretty close, so somebody had known me. So I came up with the name Hubert Johnson. So some of you may recognize the name Hubert because back at the same time, uh, a main humorist, Tim Sample, who's actually from Connecticut, was uh, doing radio commercials for a local insurance company back then, and he featured his dim-witted cousin named Hubert, and, which was also played by Tim Sample. You can get away with that on the radio. So I had the name, but I also had to have the dialect that Bob so graciously demonstrated for us here. And, and being from Stonington, Dairy, I could probably do it, so I became Hubert Johnson. So I had that, so then I had to dress apart because I couldn't wear spiffy shoes and nice clothes because another thing that might give me away. So I had to go through my own closet and I thought, what would a caretaker in Vinyl Haven wear? So I had some rock band t-shirts and I had some NASCAR t-shirts. And for some reason I still had a pair of blue bell-bottom jeans, but they'd stayed in the dryer too long, so they're about six inches too short. And I thought, that would be perfect. I did have to buy some white socks and I had some low-top Converse sneakers, so you get an image, right? So I, I affectionately call that my second choice for junior prom ensemble. <laughs> so I've got the name, I've got the dialect, I've got the clothing, but still police officers are kind of stiff and rigid and they move that way and you could still tell by looking they might be one. Well, I already had a long gait, like I was wearing clamming boots, mainly because I wore clamming boots from the time I was 11 until I was 21. Well, except for a few years off in the Navy, they wouldn't let me wear clamming boots. <laughs> So I had something to augment that stride. And when I was in the Navy, I worked with a first-class petty officer who had this really unique way of swinging his arms, and, and I'll demonstrate for you. <laughs> 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 
I bet no one's ever seen a trooper walk up to the car swinging their arms like that, have they? Huh. So I'm, I'm thinking the disguise is going to work. So I was ready to go to work. And I believe my first day at work was I had an ACDC shirt on. So I think that was appropriate. So I'm walking down the road and I got my arms swinging, my long stride, and I introduced myself to the head smuggler in charge. And I go, hi, my name's Hubert, I'm the new caretaker. And he just smiled at me and uh, he said, well, go about your business and don't mind us. Well, that was pretty ridiculous, that's why I was there, to mind them. <laughs> but, but he didn't know that. And I didn't realize when I was gonna be the caretaker, the owner of the place actually expected me to work. <laughs> for nothing, he wasn't paying for it. Uh, and what happened was, the place had recently been shingled, and evidently the contractor didn't budget enough to pick up all the shingles and nails, so that was my job. So there I was the first day on my hands and knees, my little wagon, picking up one shingle at a time and one nail at a time, because I was trying to milk this and make it last, so I could observe and listen, eavesdrop, and identify vehicles. Well, I made that job last three days. And I was able to scope out different areas around the place so I could come back either early in the morning or late in the evening with my camera. I didn't think it appropriate for Hubert to show up with a Canon AE-1 35mm with a 10-inch photo uh, telescopic lens on the front. I didn't think that would fit, especially considering his two-digit diminished IQ, just nothing he'd have. So I had to sneak back and take some pictures, which I got some fairly decent pictures. Some of them were worthy of uh, portraits for like the yearbook. So after I cleaned up all the shingles, I was thinking I got to find another reason to stay here. So the lawn needed to be mowed. I found the lawnmower, and it was only took about an hour, but I just want to ask you, how many times could someone come to your house during the course of a week and mow the lawn and not look suspicious? Probably once, right? Well, Hubert was able to mow the lawn every day for a week and they never noticed, never said a word. <laughs> but even with that, I'm thinking, I'm pushing my luck, I gotta find something else to do. So as I was putting the mower away, I found this, it was a dowel, like they'd been using, it had made a railing, it was about an you know, inch and a half in diameter. And I took a nail, pounded the end of the dial and I filed down the head of the nail so it was pointy, so I had a spearing stick to uh, gather up leaves and trash. And I got a sack, so I just wandered around the property, spearing trash and leaves. Well, I didn't spear any trash, because it wasn't around, but there was a lot of leaves, because this was October. <laughs> and Hubert's timing couldn't have been more perfect, because that same day, uh, the smugglers had female guests. So while Hubert, me, I was Hubert, was spearing leaves around the tennis court, the head smuggler in charge came up with uh, two women, dressed in their full tennis playing regalia. So. I sat down on the bench while they get ready to play tennis, and I just kind of looked at the floor, pretended not the ground, pretended not to watch them play tennis. And after a few serves and volleys, the head smuggler in charge, I'll call him Joe. Well, that was his name, Joe. But, and Joe sounds like a pretty laid back, mellow name. Well, not this guy. Uh, 10 years before this, while in Massachusetts, he murdered a informant being worked by the police while the police were outside the apartment building. And, he convinced the grand jury that it was self-defense. Well, you know, it was Massachusetts, it was the 70s, things are different. And in defense of the police, they did put a body wire on him before he went inside, but he ditched it before he got inside. So, not to blame the victim, but some of that was probably on him. But anyway, Joe was this type of guy. And he sits down next to me, and he look, kind of slyly looks at me because he thinks I'm numb, which I was trying to be numb. And he says, Hubert, what do you think of the women? And at that moment, a recollection came to me where I was working another investigation and completely unrelated, it took me to a riding stable, a horse riding stable. And at that, when I was there that day, I learned a new word. And words are wonderful things, especially if you can use them as soon as you learn them. And I wasn't able to. 
this particular word had a certain circumstance, a certain situation, you could only use it. But on this day, my word that I wanted to use and the circumstance to use it collided, and I was so happy. I looked at Joe, I looked out at the women playing tennis in their short skirts, and I looked back at Joe and said, they got nice looking gams, don't they? <laughs> and that's the only time I was able to use that word except for telling the story. And poor Joe, he bought wet his pants trying to keep from laughing, but he managed to get his composure and he agreed with my observation. And we sat there for a few more minutes and he just got up and left. Well, I didn't want to creep the ladies out while they were playing tennis, so I left behind him. We were there for another two weeks and I found other things to do. I mowed the lawn, I painted trim around the shed. Then one day they all packed up the stuff and left. No boat, no yacht, no seaplane, no nothing. I was afraid we missed it. But the more senior people in the unit, uh, they told me these things happen sometimes for whatever reason, the, unit, the boat doesn't come or they have multiple offload sites and this was just one of them and it went somewhere else. We never found out what happened until three years later. In Massachusetts, one of the would-be smugglers got caught with 40 pounds of marijuana. This is back when it's still illegal. And uh, he thought, like a lot of the people in that situation do, well, I'll give up somebody bigger and more important than what I've done and mitigate my chances of going to jail or, going, or not going to jail at all. So we told the DEA in Massachusetts this whole story about Vinyl Haven and the smuggle and all that stuff. So the DEA agent called my supervisor and said, this is what we got, we're trying to put a conspiracy case together, can you do some legwork and get some information for us? And my boss, Terry Parsons, he grew up on the backside of Mount Desert Island, he was kind of dry and he goes, well, do you want the reports? You want the videos? You want the still photographs? Or you want it all? And of course the DEA agent, he was quite pleased to have it all, so they packed it up and send it down. So in the course of their investigation, they happened to show the still photographs, the ones that look like high school portraits, to the smuggler. And the smuggler looks at it and goes, who took these pictures, Hubert? So <laughs> naturally the DEA wants to know who Hubert is. So he calls up my boss and Terry got chuckling and says, yeah, uh, Hubert was an undercover state police detective posing as a caretaker. And let's make the DEA even happier because now we have an eyewitness that was actually with these people. <coughs> Excuse me. So he... Uh, we went back and talked to the informant again, and he explained to the informant that the person who told, took the pictures was an undercover state police trooper. And I talked to the DEA agent later after that, and he said to me that the informant looked at him just as serious as could be in the eyes and said, no friggin' way on earth was Hubert a trooper. <laughs> so I did a good job. Thank you. If you're just joining us, these are some of the storytellers and poets who performed at the Blue Hill Word Festival earlier this month. You are listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM. I'm thrilled to introduce uh, many of you who, who don't know her to you tonight. Um, her name is Catherine Wise. She is a poetry slam, a slam poet. Oh, she told me what to say and I'm messing it up. Oh, I want to get it right because it was cool. She's a slam poet. There it is. That was so easy. A slam po poet, born and raised in Blue Hill. And she is also the author of a chapbook. Please welcome back to Blue Hill and to the stage, Catherine Weiss. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me and putting on this... Um, this was really awesome. 
I only got here this morning, but um, I went to some of the poetry crawl. And um, so I'm stalling because um, I'm incredibly nervous <laughs> to be in a church and do these poems, but it's cool. <laughs> um, and in a minute, you'll see why. When I was eight, I didn't worry when I grew up that dudes yelling things at me out of moving cars would be an issue. Generally, the culprit is a big Jeep thing full of college bros with their windows down. I always want to say, but I'm just like you. Minus the whole being an asshole thing. You have made a mistake. I am a person. When I was eight, I did not anticipate I'd have to choose between being apologetic to the businessman sitting next to me on an airplane and staying home. Because there's nothing like seeing a bored stranger's day instantly ruined when he figures out he has to spend several hours adjacent to that. When I was eight, I didn't think by the time I was 15, I would be throwing up several times a day in the dormitory bathroom, hoping the girls I lived with thought I was puking because I was pregnant, which would mean someone considered my body worth touching. When I was eight, I did not live with the knowledge that someday boyfriends who privately took pleasure from my figure would be ashamed to hold my hand in public when all I wanted was to pass for half a couple like I was one of you. When I was eight, I had not yet absorbed that I wasn't a person worth talking to because I wasn't fuckable enough, but somewhere along the line, I got tired of apologizing for taking up more than my fair share of real estate. So no, I'm not sorry that sometimes my arms are visible, and I'm not sorry I'm asking you to look at me right now. I'm not sorry I'm telling you to listen. So listen, bros. If you ever bothered to stop your Jeep, climb on out, shake my hand and have a dialogue, you know, like adults, I'd get to explain the space I'm taking up on the sidewalk never belonged to you. However, when I was eight, I thought I could be inside your car someday. And a part of me still is silenced, standing out on the pavement, the feel of ice water slowly trickling down the back of my neck. Thank you. I don't want to do that one. I'm not going to read that one. I'm going to read one. All right, so does anybody know what a contrapuntal poem is? It's a form. So basically, um, it's two separate poems, and then you read them, you put them next to each other, and you read them all the way across. They're hard to do. Trust me, it's fine. This one is called Confinement. In captivity once, a beluga whale learned to mimic a human voice pitch, and rhythm. They thought she said, get out, so the, keep, the keeper climbed out of the tank. Whale was done, with hearing only her desperate, solitary thoughts reflected from a concrete wall. 
Belugas are captured because they are expressive and they die less often than other whales in confinement. But water is not enough to keep being alive. She knew how to grin big, look happy. No one understanding she wanted not to die in this cage. Two. I took a shower in the dark and brushed teeth, put on clean clothes, applied makeup. In the psych ward, somehow, I do all the right things. In return, the doctors say I'm certainly improving. They say I look like I am employed in the hospital. This is because I am on vacation at a daycare for the mentally ill. If I worked here, I would be even more visibly depressed. It's just, I wish they knew my illness is frightening. But if I called them all heads, they'd give me more drugs and force me to talk of myself. Three. In captivity once, I took a shower. A beluga whale in the dark learned and brushed teeth to mimic a human put on clean clothes. Voice applied, pitch and rhythm. Makeup in the psych ward. They thought she somehow said, get out, I do all the right things, so the keeper in return climbed out of the tank. The doctors say I'm whale, was certainly done with improving. They, hearing only her, say I look desperate like I am. Solitary thoughts employed reflected from in the hospital. This is because I am a concrete wall. Belugas on vacation are captured at a daycare because they are expressive for the mentally ill. And if I worked, they'd die less often than here. I would be other whales and even more confinement, but water is visibly depressed. It's just not enough. I wish they knew to keep being. My illness is alive. She knew how frightening to grin big, but if I called them all look-happy fuckheads, they'd know one. Give me understanding. She wanted more drugs not to die and force me to talk in this cage of myself. Thank you. So my timer says I have five minutes left, so I'm going to do a short one and then, like, not a long one, but, like, another poem. So I'm really bad at banter. I'm just going to read you poems. It's fine. Um, cool. The pain in your left breast has taken on all kinds of significance since you knuckled under and made the doctor's appointment. Driving to the bank, you think, this is what will kill me, this here cancer of the left breast. Having lunch, you think, I must not tell anyone how much I am looking forward to writing urgent poems about mortality. Driving to therapy, you think, what will happen to my Facebook profile? Driving away from therapy, you think, what will happen to my husband? By the time you arrive at the waiting room, you are already bored of having cancer of the left breast. You are ready for the next thing to happen. The doctor palpates your tissue, and it hurts more than you expect. You have forgotten you did not also invent the pain in your eagerness to die. It's a muscle strain, says your doctor, kindly. 
She must think you are reassured by the news. She must think you are somehow here, in this room, at all. All right, this is my last poem. And I think I have it memorized, but just in case. My first boyfriend was a nerd, sci-fi, HTML, hair parted precisely down the middle. Said he loved me after two weeks. He seemed so harmless. But is harmless the right word for the man who knew to leave me in the car while he went in to buy the condoms? There's a first time for every thing. He suggested we keep this between us. Sex is supposed to be secret, right? It's always a little scary, right? Always shameful, right? No! My first boyfriend was a dork. He wore sandals with white athletic socks. You wouldn't pity your hunter, right? Sometimes it happened in the back of his van parked nights behind the elementary school place I knew well. After all, we met a few weeks after my eighth grade graduation. Met is the wrong word for when a wolf first croons that line. Age ain't nothing but a number. I didn't want to admit my first wasn't really a boyfriend, so I reframed the story, dubbed him a nerd and me a seductress. That version doesn't make my skin itch. A predator doesn't have to be cool to get what he wants. His green polar fleece vest zipped down the front. Remember grandmother's nightgown? My, what big teeth you have. Consider this, me. Slicing my way out of your belly. I won't keep your secrets any longer. I thought admitting it was abuse would erase me. I didn't know I could have also retained my sense of humor, remained the person I always was. I wanted to go to the school dance. Maybe kiss somebody, but... Definitely dance the mambo number five. Live la vida loca, get knocked down by Chumbawamba. Consider this me getting up again. You're never going to keep me down. And sure, maybe lyrics from tub thumping shouldn't belong in a poem about statutory rape. But damn it, they belong in this one because this one belongs to me. I survive on my own terms. No wolf in geek's clothing gets to win that easy. So every day I choose joy. And today joy sounds like saying out loud, it was not okay. But I am. Thank you. And that was just a small sampling of the poets and storytellers who performed at the Blue Hill Word Festival earlier this month. For more information about them, about the festival, and about the plans that are underway for next year, you can go to wordfestival.org. And thanks to Matt Murphy for recording the event.
You've been listening to Maine Currents. I'm Amy Brown. Join me here every Tuesday at 4 for independent local news, views, and culture only on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Now! is up next, followed by a night of great music, and here's to hoping everyone is warm and safe out there and getting your electricity back if you've lost it, and have a happy Halloween.